And you should uh, receive a handout on the way in with notes for our Positive Holiness series. And we are going to be picking up on page 6 of those notes, page 6. One announcement, and that is after we finish this series in three weeks, on September the 17th, we will, in this room, have a class called Master Plan for Life. And you will receive a notebook of 240-some pages that we will spend several months going through together on the major teachings of Scripture, the doctrine of God, doctrine of Scripture, doctrine of man and sin, of Christ, of salvation, of the church, of end times. So we'll give you an overview of the major doctrinal themes of the Bible. The first part of it seeks to answer one question, who am I? And the second part answers the question, why am I here? It's a foundational course that we urge everyone in our church to go through. And we've moved that to Sunday morning to make it as accessible as possible. That will start three weeks from today. For those of you that have already taken that, we'll have another class going on in another part of the building. Uh, 1 Corinthians, going through the book of 1 Corinthians, Dr. Combs will be leading that, that class for us. So we'll have two classes going on for those many months. That starts in in three weeks. Also three weeks from today, starting with that class, we're going to begin this second hour not at 11.15 but at 11 o'clock because we need an hour to go through the Master Plan for Life lessons. So it'll start at 11 o'clock. Now, that could have meant that you only have 10 or 15 minutes for coffee and bagels. We thought about that. Leaving the Sunday morning worship time exactly as it is, shortening the time for the coffee and bagels, and then starting this at 11 o'clock. We thought about that, and then we thought about our physical safety. (laughs) And, And we determined that would be a really bad idea. So... Uh, we are taking out of the worship service the beginning part with the announcements. We're not doing the announcements starting in three weeks at the beginning. We're going to gain five to ten minutes out of that. We'll shave a few minutes here and there so that we can get done at around 10.35. We'll still have our uh, refreshment time. We think it's an important time, fellowship time. And then we'll start at 11 o'clock. So that in three weeks, when you come in at 9.30... It won't be the announcements. If you come in at 9.35, you're not coming into the announcements. We've already started worship. The call to worship then will not be at 9.38 or 9.40 like it is and has been. It'll be at 9.30. So that means those of you that thought you had and have had for all these years that buffer of the announcements, you don't have the buffer for the announcements anymore. So I'm going to send notes around about that for the next couple of weeks to remind you about that. But that's what's coming up. Today and for the next two Sundays, we're finishing this series called Positive Holiness. And we haven't had it for five weeks. We started it and then uh, we uh, had a break because we had our four-week newcomers orientation that I taught uh, in another room. We had some of our guys fill in for those four weeks in here. And then last week, we had the taking the next steps on our discipleship presentation that I made. So now, five weeks later, we're back to resuming with session three 
on page six. And because it's been five weeks, I want to quickly remind you about some of the things we looked at in the three weeks that we've already had. We've called this positive holiness because, contrary to what many people believe, holiness is not first what you do not do. Holiness is first what you do. Holiness is, first of all, what you are pursuing, not what you're avoiding. Most people think of holiness as things you don't do, things you stay away from. It certainly involves that and it requires that. But the things you stay away from and don't do are all because of what it is you're trying to achieve. So we saw when we started this series that Jesus said, was asked, what are the, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all the law and the prophets, said Jesus. So all of these commands about what you don't do, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make to yourself any graven image. You shall not lie. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. All of these things that we're told not to do, which most people, unfortunately, think of as the Christian life. (laughs) Stuff you don't do. They're all about what it is we're trying to do. Love God and love others. And if you positively love God, then you will not make for yourself an idol. You will not use his name in vain. That's why Jesus says these other things flow from that. That's why it's the greatest command. And the second is like it. And the other commands of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, flow from that. Loving your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you won't kill, you won't steal, you won't lie, and so on. So when we say positive holiness, that's what we mean. Holiness is, first of all, about what we're trying to accomplish. And the things we don't do flow from and flow from logically and automatically from that. Holiness is being set apart, being different. We're different. You're you're going to be different if you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You're going to be different if you truly love your neighbor as yourself. That's going to make you different than everybody else, and it's going to show up then in the, the way you live. So that's positive holiness. That's why the title. Another aspect of this, then, that if we're going to engage in lives of positive holiness that we need to understand is the world and worldliness. Because if we're going to be separate, if we're going to be different, we're separate and different from, in contrast to, something. And the something in the Bible is the world, worldliness. The Bible warns against worldliness, and it continually commands us to be separate, to be holy from the world. So Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You get James chapter 1 in verse 27. Pure religion that God our Father accepts is this to help widows and orphans in their affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. In James chapter 4, James said, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity, war against God? 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for all that is in the world, 
the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. This all comes from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the one who does the will of God will live forever. So you constantly got this Christian world separating. Do not be conformed from the world. Be different from, be apart from the world. You have that refrain throughout Scripture, so much so that on the night before Jesus died, and he gave his prayer in John chapter 17 to the Father, the night before he dies, he prays for his followers, and he says to them, Father, they are in the world. But he goes on to say they are not of the world, in the world and not of the world. So they are located in a, in a place where the values of the world that are contrary to God rule. They're in it. They're surrounded by it. But they're not of it. Their values and their affections and their allegiances come from you. That makes them a minority in the world. So there's this constant then theme in Scripture to be holy, to be different from the world. Now, that means we need to have some definitions. And a few weeks ago, I gave these definitions. I remind you of them. There's culture. And culture is the collective values of a given society expressed in the arts, the media, fashion, and customs. So culture is the collective values of a given society expressed in arts, media, fashion, and customs. That's what culture is. And at every place and at all times, everyone is living in a particular culture. And a particular society that develops that culture has their values. And they express those values in their arts, media, fashion, and customs. Now, so far, there's nothing wrong with any of that. That's just what it is. That's culture. Collective values of a given society expressed in arts, media, fashion, and culture. Worldliness is a subset of that. So we all live in our culture. Everybody lives in a culture, in their place and time. But everybody also has a subset of that culture. Some portions of those collective values that are worldly. So worldliness is fallen values expressed in culture. Sinful values expressed in culture. Culture is collective values. Those values may be good or not. Worldliness is fallen values that are expressed in the culture in its arts and media and fashion and customs. So you've got this, you know, large circle. I should put that on the screen if I loved you. I would have. But you just have this large circle that is culture. And then you have a smaller circle within it that is worldliness. And that outer portion between the circle of culture and the circle of worldliness in between is another definition, common grace. Common grace. And common grace is good values, non-worldly values of the culture. 
So culture is all about values that are expressed in a given society and its arts, its media, its fashion, its customs. Worldliness is fallen values expressed through those. And what we've got to do is differentiate which ones are common grace values, things that even sinful people get right, and which are worldly values expressed in the culture. Engage in the one, avoid the other. Now, with that definition, with those definitions, what that means is worldliness is not what many of us just commonly caught. Probably none of us were actually taught this, but you know most of what we glean is caught rather than taught. And many of us caught the idea when we were growing up that worldliness is what the what people in the world do. Whatever people in the world do is worldliness. Well, see, that doesn't fit the definition I just gave you because sometimes worldlings get it right because of common grace. Sometimes people in the world do the right thing. I'm very thankful for that because otherwise the planet is uninhabitable. If everybody only does sinful things all the time and expresses sinful fallen values all the time, then this place is uninhabitable. There'll be a time in the future when it will be like that. When there will be the great tribulation, a time of trouble such as the world has never seen, the Bible says. When the world will not have the influence of the Holy Spirit and Christians around. And you don't want to be here. Thankfully, the Bible teaches we won't be. But we are, as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That influences then the world. Christians, contrary to what non-Christians think, Christians have a very salutary, very good effect on life. If we weren't here, it would be uninhabitable. So even worldlings get it right. Even people who don't acknowledge God, aren't Christians, aren't living for Him, they still get married. They get divorced a lot, but they get married. And they still value marriage. That's an institution that came from God. That's a good thing. Um, sometimes, often, you have people who work hard. That's a, that's a common grace value. God's the one who gave work for people to do it, and they work hard. And even are honest in their work. And come home to their families. And seek to raise their families. People who are non-Christians do that. But when they do that, they are always living off of what some call the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. And you guys heard me call it the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. That is, unbelievers are living the way God made us to live in at least some aspects. Marriage is his institution. They're engaging in it without acknowledging him. So you're stealing. But I'm glad it goes on because it benefits everybody. It benefits us. So that's what we mean by common grace. And it means, though, that it is not so easy for us then to determine what's worldly just by saying, what does the world do? Because sometimes the world gets it right. It means then we have to analyze. We have to exegete the culture. We've got to look at what it's doing and we've got to ask, ourse- ask ourselves, 
is what's happening in our culture, is what's being displayed in the arts, the media, fashion, customs, is that displaying fallen values or common grace values? And we must regularly ask ourselves that, each of us. And if we're not sure whether a given thing is expressing fallen values or common grace values, here's what Romans 14 says in verse 23. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And that is summarized in the Bible Knowledge Commentary this way. I'm quoting. When in doubt, don't. If you're not sure it's right, then don't participate. But you'll only be engaging in whether it's right or wrong if you do what I'm talking about. If you're exegeting the culture, if you're analyzing the culture to say, is this expressing common grace values or fallen values? If it's expressing fallen values, it's sin. I don't, as a Christian who's pursuing holiness set apart, I don't engage in that. So now that's going to result in a bunch of stuff you don't do. You end up making a list of stuff I'm not going to do. You don't just do it because everybody else is, if you're a Christian, right? That violates holiness by definition. So having analyzed it, there are things I don't participate in. Places and things I don't go and things I don't want to see. But everybody's got to make that decision. What I'm trying to give you is a framework for making that decision. Now, page six. All of that then gives us groundwork for having the courage of holiness. So now you're a Christian who's been called out of the world and to God. You've got a different set of values and allegiances. They're in conflict with the world's fallen values. And you go out into the world and you engage with people. And like Brother Joel was saying in his testimony about his ministry in Turkey, where he was saying that he engages in relational evangelism. He can do that, we can do that, because we have some common grace things in common with unbelievers. So we can talk, we can interact, we can enjoy each other's company, but then we're going to hit some stuff we don't have in common. And what happens then? And as he mentioned, he broaches the subject of God and your relationship with God and The fellow's convicted about that. People may get hostile about that. All of that means that for a Christian who wants to live holy, there has to be an element of courage. You've got to be somebody who's willing to broach the subject, engage with people in these common grace ways, but then broach the subject of your relationship with God. And that can be scary. So I say, top of page six, Many Christians fail to stand up for truth in their words and actions because they fear the opinion of the world. Although there are a number of reasons for our fear, we might be exposed, that is exposed, I don't know all the answers, so I'm embarrassed about that. The most common is that we'll be rejected or ridiculed. The Bible calls this the fear of man and warns against it. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. If we are not firmly convinced of the absolute rightness of our cause, we will not have the courage necessary to resist being, quote, squeezed into the world's mold. In order to live against the grain of the culture, the believer must know and believe that the world's perspective is radically distorted. 
The values of the world are a distortion of God's original intention. And because its values are not consistent with the real world of the creator, they cannot be lived out without disastrous consequences. In order to make sense of life, the world must live off of the borrowed, stolen capital of a biblical worldview. Therefore, we do not understand in order to believe, but rather, as Augustine said, I believe in order to understand. Ah, It's a profound thing. You see, until you believe, you don't see clearly. So I believe in order now to understand. Or, as Pascal said, the heart has reasons of which reason knows nothing. That is, before somebody even engages in an argument about whether Christianity is true or the Bible is true or any of that, the heart already has its reasons for rejecting it. And the Christian heart has its reasons for receiving it and welcoming it. Or, in the words of Psalm 36, in thy light, We see light. What a great phrase. You see clearly. You see light. But you do it when you're in the light. In thy light we see light. The believer who understands and believes this will not fear the opinion of man. But rather live in the fear of the Lord. Which is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord. Reverence for the Lord. So what I'm really pounding home there is this. If you're going to have the courage of your convictions then you absolutely must be assured in your own heart and mind that it's right. And that the people whom you're trying to reach, I don't mean this in an unkind way, just in a factual way, are wrong. What they believe is wrong. What they believe is harmful. What they believe is harmful to them in this life and in the next. And because you have that conviction then, That absolute conviction, you have the courage then to speak. But if you don't, if you are as many Christians are, as I've observed over the years, who kind of look with a bit of longing at the world. You know, and they seem to really be having a good time, man. I really wish, why can't we be more like, why can't we just loosen up a little bit, okay? You guys are all so uptight, they're just having a great time. You've got to be convinced that underlying what the world does is what the world believes. And what the world believes is wrong. And it's deadly wrong, and it's eternally deadly wrong. And if you believe that, then it will motivate you. You'll have the courage to stand up for truth. So this is about, then, reminding you of what the world believes, what the Bible says about the, what the world believes, so that you'll have that courage. Middle of page 6. The importance, then, of a worldview. Everybody has one. The unbeliever has a heart with its reasons, about which reason knows nothing, as Pascal said. They've got a way of looking at things. They came into the world that way. We all did. With a contrary-to-God way of looking at things. But most people obtain their worldview by unconsciously absorbing it from the culture rather than consciously adopting it from Scripture. When I say most people, I mean most Christians. The world just gets it naturally. You're born with it. But then Christians, unfortunately, don't take time to consciously adopt their view of the world from Scripture. And if you don't, you'll just live in the world, you'll be in the world, and you will become more and more like the world. 
You'll absorb it. So identifying and mastering the components of the Christian worldview will strengthen the faith of any believer and help us to detect and refute error. So what is a worldview? It's a way of, we say here, viewing or interpreting all of reality. It's a framework through which one makes the sense of the data of life and the world. And the consequences are many. Belief determines behavior. Jesus said out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what you believe in your in the depths of your heart is going to come out in your words and your behavior. You can even see this just as an example in politics. Top of page seven. Your worldview should determine your politics. Your worldview should determine everything. But most of us don't think about first principles and attach what we believe about stuff to those first principles. But here's an example from the world of politics. The founding fathers looked to their own Christian heritage of the idea of original sin, and they found confirmation of the notion that man is an unregenerate rebel who who has to be controlled. They were inordinately confident that they knew what man always had been and what he always would be. Private vices, that is, individual personal sin, could become public benefits. An economically beneficent result would providentially or naturally be achieved if self-interest were left free from state interference and allowed to pursue it at its own ends. That's a mouthful. What's it saying? People are sinfully greedy. And if you create a system that allows people to pursue their greed, you will have the greatest economic engine the world has ever seen. It's called capitalism. It's what capitalism is based on. And the reason it works is because it's based on a true foundation. People are sinful. And you create then a government of checks and balances to control those impulses. It's really quite brilliant. But it's brilliant because it's based on truth about human nature. When I graduated from high school and first went to college, I was, some of you know this, I wanted to pursue politics. So the first couple of years, I was taking all these political science classes. And then I started thinking about, you know, and I'm going to go into my third year. How do you get a job as a politician? Well, you got to go to law school. Am I going to get into a, a good law school and actually be able to make a living in case I don't get elected? And what are the chances of me getting elected? If my platform is, you're an unregenerate rebel, rebel who has to be controlled. <laughs> Vote for Ken. <laughs> so I gave that up. Next paragraph, ideas have real-world consequences. Human nature says Myron Magnet in The Dream and the Nightmare, is not infinitely changeable, but it has its own laws. Therefore, there is a right life for man, a life in accordance with our nature. It isn't a given of nature that people restrain their aggression, beget and nurture their offspring in marriage, exercise foresight, calculate rationally, or work to improve their condition. The wonder is not that people don't do it, but rather that they do. So it makes sense to ask how society fosters people that dependably work and marry and are capable of rational calculation, how culture takes the aggressive, egotistical, raw material of human nature each of us is born with and develops in it conscience, reason, and duty. So I'm going to wax any more political. I'll just tell you that the two competing positions of conservative and liberal, 
at bottom. This is what they have at bottom. A different view of human nature. A liberal view has a positive view of human nature. People are either good or they're at least a blank slate that can be molded. A conservative approach says you've got to actively try to conserve things. Otherwise, that's where the name comes from. You've got to conserve things because they will be destroyed if you don't actively conserve them. Why will they be destroyed? Because people are not basically good. They're bad. Do with what you want with that. So that's the necessity of the importance of worldview. Now here are the presuppositions of a Christian worldview. The things that you can know, and you can know that the person you're talking to knows, because they're presuppositions, when you engage them about Christ. A Christian with a sanctified intellect can see life for what it is. The non-Christian mind continues to suppress the truth of the Christian worldview. And we see this in Romans 1. And Romans 1 tells us three things about unbelievers. So if you're going to have the courage of your convictions, you got to know what the situation is with the unbeliever that you're going to be talking to. And before you even are introduced to this unbeliever, no matter who they are, you know some things about them. And the reason you know some things about them is because God wrote a book. And God made those people. And God tells you what the deal is with them. And he says in Romans 1, three things about them. One, they know God. So before you go and talk to an unbeliever, that's one of the presuppositions. They know God. Now, we're going to see they don't like God. That's a whole other deal. But they know God. Romans one twenty one. although they knew God, God, And then I say literally they're the God. In Greek, you have the definite article. Although they knew the God, they did not glorify him as God. But how can Paul say that all people know God? He says it because of verse 20. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. It's similar to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. So everybody knows there's a God. The Bible says. So when you talk to the unbeliever, even the person who claims to not believe in God knows God. That's why the bottom of page 7, there are no philosophical atheists. Everyone has access to this knowledge. Everyone has this knowledge. But we're going to see what they do with it. And so why you've got people who claim to be philosophical atheists. There aren't philosophical atheists. People who in their heart of hearts who really believe there's no God. That's why so many times when a professing atheist is on their deathbed, they profess things that they denied their entire life. Because it was there all the time. There are no philosophical atheists. There are many practical atheists. Living as if there is no God. Living as if God does not matter. And God is not a factor. But people know God, Romans 1 says. Top of page 8. 
but they don't want to know God. That's the other thing you know about them. They know God, but they don't want to. God has given truth about himself to all people, yet because of the idolatry of sin, the truth he knows, he suppresses. Again, Romans 1. The anger of God, the wrath of God, is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Suppress it. Suppress, they hold it down. Now, the reason it has to be suppressed and held down is because they know it. So you don't suppress and hold down something you don't have. They have it, but they suppress it. They squelch it. And then verse 28 of Romans 1 says, They do not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. That's saying they don't like to think about God. They know God. But they don't like to think about God. That's why they suppress it. And that's why when you turn the subject to God, people either get hostile often or they just put it off limits. You go to work. You young people who aren't every day in the workaday world yet. But when you get there and you work Monday through Friday or whatever it is, you'll be amazed when you come in every Monday at what your coworkers are willing to share with you about what they did over the weekend. They'll tell you way more than you ever wanted to know. It's just open. It's just out there. Talking about how they got blasted over the weekend at whatever party they were with. About who it was they slept with. About whatever happened. They'll tell you. And if you say, hey, have you ever thought about God? What? We don't talk about that at work. We can talk about anything except God. And that goes back to the sinful nature of humanity. They don't want to think about God. God is like a repressed memory, you know. It's like the person who had an upbringing. It's a real phenomenon where someone has an upbringing in which they were mistreated, abused, and they don't want to think about it. And the Bible is saying that the natural relationship of people to God is a bad one. They don't want to think about it. They don't like God. They don't want to retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. So 1 Corinthians 2 says, the non-Christian does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. He knows God, but he's practiced at suppressing God and holding down what he knows. And he doesn't invite it, doesn't want to think about it. So you know three things about the unbeliever. They know God, they don't want to know God. C, thirdly, the unbeliever is a fool. Verse 22 of Romans 1, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, when we say a fool, we don't mean intellectually deficient. Oh, man, nothing of the kind. Yikes. Unbelievers can be brilliant in their unbelief. And very articulate and very intimidating in their unbelief. And they often are. I mean, if you watched the late Christopher Hitchens, and you would, he was a professed atheist, and he wrote some books against God. God is not great, he wrote. Uh, no, God is not good. 
God is Not Good was the name of his book. He's now, he's now deceased. Uh, there is one friend of his who says that even Christopher Hitchens made some of these statements when he was dying, that he denied his whole life. But if you ever heard Christopher Hitchens, he was a brilliant guy. Just had a wealth of knowledge at his disposal. And on top of that, he had a British accent. Which makes you even smarter. So when we say fool here, we don't mean intellectually deficient. Ignorance and foolishness are not the same thing. Ignorance means you don't know. Foolishness means you fail to apply what you do know. And the unbeliever is a fool because they do know God, but they fail to apply that knowledge. That's why the Bible says in Psalm 14:1, the fool has said in his heart, what? There is no God. He knows there is a God, but he fails to apply and acknowledge what he does know. And as a result then of that, the believer, the unbeliever is reduced to defending the indefensible. Verse 20, they are without excuse. And the phrase without excuse is literally the Greek word that's translated with those two words, without excuse, is a Greek word, apologia. Now we get our English word apologetics from that. And apologetics is, if you go to Bible college or seminary, We've got books in our resource center on the subject of apologetics. You have classes at Bible college and seminary on apologetics. And that word means, apologia, a defense. A defense of Christian apologetics is a defense of the Christian faith. But here it's saying, in the negative form of that word, they are without an excuse. Literally, they're without a defense. Unbelievers are defenseless. It's why the Bible says in Romans 3 and verse 20, Romans 3 and verse 20, that before the law of God, every mouth will be stopped. When unbelievers stand before God, as everyone will, at the great white throne of judgment, they will have no defense. You knew God, you knew me, and you rejected me. I placed in your heart, Romans chapter 2, my law and a conscience I gave to you to know that there is right and wrong and therefore there is a lawgiver who makes things right and wrong. I gave you all of that and you rejected it and you suppressed it. Therefore, there is no excuse and there will be nothing that you will say. So the conclusion, the unbeliever's view of the creator's world is hopelessly distorted. In fact, he has no valid basis for his own beliefs. Right, so stop there. No valid basis for his own beliefs. So what? You know, he believes that killing people is wrong. But then you go, so why is that? Well, can't just go around killing people. Well, why not? I mean, you know, let's suppose, uh, I think I've told you this story before, but you've got Cal Thomas, who is... Uh, Christian journalist, and years ago he used to go to college campuses and he would talk about Christian apologetics, and often in a hostile environment, college campuses, liberal, all that. 
And there would be Q&A times afterward. And he says, you know, one time uh, you know, I had a kid come up to me and say, look, I'm a 3.5 political science student, 3.5 grade point average political science student. And I don't need you or God or the Bible or anybody else to tell me how to live my life. And uh, Cal Thomas said, well, is murder wrong? And he goes, yeah, of course murder's wrong. He says, why? He says, because there's laws against it. He says, what if we could get the laws changed? Because I think there should be a law that cocky people should be shot. (laughs) And if I could get enough people to agree with me to change the law, I could shoot you, right? So all you got to do is get enough people to agree with you, which, taking it to its extreme, in Nazi Germany, that's exactly what happened, right? You get enough people to agree that there are certain people who don't deserve to live because of their ethnicity, and here we go. Cal Thomas tells another story. He says, you know, I had another occasion. A student comes up to me, and this gal gave me one I'd never heard before. You know, she's objecting to what I said. I said, well, is it wrong to murder? And she says, yeah. And he says, why? And she says, well, because of my socialization process. And he says, you're what? (laughs) And she says, well, I was socialized against killing people. My parents taught me it's wrong to kill people. He says, uh, okay, uh, but if if my dog messes on your lawn, then do you have a right to kill me? And she says, my socialization process would keep me from doing that. He says, well, let's reverse it. What if your dog messes on my lawn and I didn't have your parents? I've got a different socialization process. Then we're not having this conversation. You see that the unbeliever has no leg to stand on because they've rejected God. They have no basis for things that they assume all the time to be true. And they live off of the stolen capital of the biblical worldview. They live in a world where there are laws against all of those things. But those laws are all based upon these these ideas being absolute. You live in a country that's based on that idea. That all men are created equal and are endowed by whom? Their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, numero uno, life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So they're living off the borrowed capital of the biblical worldview. So, back to the bottom of page 8. The unbeliever's view of the creator's world is hopelessly distorted. Has no valid basis for his own beliefs. Having denied the truth Of the God of the Bible, he's reduced to borrowing, stealing from the biblical worldview as a foundation for his own house of cards. Therefore, the believer need not fear that the unbeliever may have it right after all. The world, for all its sophistication, flash and dazzle, is really a vanity fair of fool's gold. So we would be wise to heed the words of Colossians. And these are beautiful words. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When you have Christ, you now have lenses through which you see things clearly. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of, notice, this world and not on Christ. If you cement that in your mind, the unbeliever does not have it. 
for all of the sophistication and high-sounding rhetoric, if you understand that this is the true portrait of the unbeliever, now you'll have the courage of holiness. And you'll be willing to stand up and tell the truth, kindly, lovingly, but directly. Let's ask God to help us to do that, even this week. And then we'll continue this next week, all right? Father, thank you for our time together to consider what you have told us in your word about you, first of all, you literally, first of all, in the beginning, God. And everything else flows from that. We were made to know you. The first man and the first woman constructed, created by you were made to know your voice. And when you spoke to them, they heeded, they heard. But Father, we have all rebelled. And our sin has horribly distorted now the way we see you, ourselves, others, and the world. Thank you for the regeneration of our hearts that has changed us from the inside and is changing us from the inside. Thank you, Lord, for the continual renewal of our minds that takes place when we learn your truth and by your spirit, we welcome it. So thank you, Lord, that as Christians, we are different. We are called out of the world and to you, but Lord, we are in it, though not of it. Grant us the courage of our convictions that this is true, this is right. Nothing fits together. Nothing works as it was made to work apart from you. And going with that conviction that it's in your light that, and your light alone that we see light. Help us to be willing to speak up. Grant us the love to establish relationships and to use the common grace that we have with, that we have in common with our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family. But help us to have the courage to speak about Jesus and about their need. Because Lord, it is eternal, eternity that is at stake. So help us to recognize that. Help us to take joy in what you've done and are doing and use us as your lights in a dark world. Go with us this week. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.